You're listening to the Keep Writing Podcast, a resource for Christian writers who are ready to conquer what's holding them back. I'm Nika Maples, and this is episode 79, He Has a Plan. Today I'll be reading chapter 3 from my book, Hunting Hope, He Has a Plan. The speed of my answer surprised me when someone recently asked, what's next for you? Obedience, I answered. That's always what's next for me. Maybe I have finally learned that any other plan won't work. Obedience is my plan. Obedience was the plan for most of the tide changers in the Bible. This year I made a little project of marking certain themes in the Bible with certain colors. I'm a sucker for school supplies, especially supplies in coordinated colors. It has crossed my mind that one reason I became a public school English teacher was to have a valid excuse to buy new school supplies every fall. Newly armed with a set of highlighters in eight colors and a set of matching page tabs, I set out to annotate what I read in the Bible every morning. I marked passages that related to teaching. I marked passages that related to speaking and writing. I marked passages that related to handling adversity. And... I marked passages that related to bearing fruit. Immediately I realized that I also needed to highlight all the passages that related to obedience because there were many. I didn't mark the places that just mentioned the word obedience. Rather, I marked the fantastic and miraculous stories that came about only because someone obeyed. A basic example of this would be Noah. If he had not obeyed God's instructions to build a boat, his entire family would have been lost in the flood, and God would have used someone else to repopulate the earth. Actually, there is no simple way to imagine the outcome of his disobedience. It would have been catastrophic. So, as I labeled the traces of obedience in the Bible, page after page after page, were awash in neon color. Fluorescent tabs stick out like porcupine quills. Here's what I noticed in all of those stories. God unfolds his plan after the person takes a step of obedience, not before. God does not fully explain to Abraham how a great nation will come through him. He just asks him to move to a new land. The plan unfolds after he does. God does not fully explain to Moses how the Israelites will leave Egypt and escape Pharaoh with his pursuing chariots. He just asks Moses to approach the Red Sea. The plan unfolds after he does. God does not fully explain any plan to anyone as far as I can see in Scripture. He only asks them to do something, and then the plan unfolds. An unfortunate truth also applies here. God does not fully explain to Eve that thousands of years of horror will come from eating the forbidden fruit. He just asks her not to eat it. We will never know how his original plan would have unfolded if she had obeyed. God's plan cannot be thwarted. But for now, the blueprint of heaven awaits. What if God's best for our lives hinges on a step of obedience? There is no better example of a destiny delayed by obedience 
Then in Numbers 13 and 14, when Moses sends 12 spies, one from each tribe in Israel, to scout out Canaan. This is the promised land that the Lord has said he will turn over as an inheritance to the Israelites. All the spies have to do is evaluate everything they see and return to the camp with a survey of the area. They're not supposed to go looking for an answer because there isn't a question about whether the Israelites will be successful in their mission to overtake the land. God has already said it will be so. After 40 days of scouting, the 12 spies return with conflicting intelligence reports. Two spies say that conquest is certain. They agree with God. Ten others argue, saying that the invasion will fail miserably. People throughout the camp become afraid. They believe the majority of the spies and do not believe God's promise. Jehovah has directed them to go into the land and take it, but the people are just too scared to take action. They do not move forward. They just stand still and worry. It looks as if they are doing nothing, but the Lord says they are doing something. What they're doing is disobeying. As a result of this bald-faced rebellion, they secure a terrible consequence. God tells Moses, But as surely as I live, and as surely as the earth is filled with the Lord's glory, not one of these people will ever enter that land. They have all seen my glorious presence and the miraculous signs I performed both in Egypt and in the wilderness. But again and again they have tested me by refusing to listen to my voice. They will never even see the land I swore to give their ancestors. None of those who have treated me with contempt will ever see it. The ten spies who disobeyed through disbelief are struck with a plague and die on the spot. The Lord sentences all the rest of the Israelites to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. One year for every day that the spies had scouted the land. Then the entire nation walks and walks and walks taking a 40-year trip that would have taken only 11 days under normal circumstances. Everyone over the age of 20 at the time of the spies' reports dies without seeing the land of promise, except two. Joshua and Caleb, the only spies who trusted God and returned from the scouting trip with positive news, are allowed to enter the land of Canaan. Did you notice that they get the the reward just for intending to obey and for encouraging others to do the same? They had not yet had a chance to do the actual work of obedience. It was all about their willingness and belief. But one particular aspect of the story is most convicting to me. In Numbers 14.3, when the Israelites hear the negative reports from the spies, they whine, Why is the Lord taking us to this country only to have us die in battle? Our wives and our little ones will be carried off as plunder. We see that their justification for disobedience is concern for their children. They don't trust God with what is most precious to them. Later, Moses gives the people this ironic decree straight from God. I will give the land to your little ones your innocent children. You were afraid they would be captured, but they will be the ones who occupy it. The Israelites wanted to protect their children while God wants to give promise to their children. 
His plans for us are much better than safety. But admit it, there are days when our own plans stop right there. We all have our babies, those things in our lives that are most precious to us, our health, our careers, our spouses, our dreams, our children. How many times have I withheld something I loved, my baby, trying to avoid tragedy when the whole time God was trying to bring triumph in that very area? My friend Becky tells of a day when she was in a minor car wreck while her infant was in the back seat. When she and the other driver tried to exchange insurance information, she had a challenging time balancing her son while she wrote. Here, I'll hold the baby, the man said. Thank you, but I can do it, she answered, continuing to write. It would go a lot faster if you just let me hold the baby, he asked again. I appreciate your help, but I'd rather hold him, she said. He asked one more time before my friend turned to him and said, Please do not ask me again. I only allow people I know to hold my baby. She immediately saw the spiritual truth in what she had said. We only feel comfortable handing over our babies to someone we know. The same is true of our interaction with God. If only we make the effort to really know him, then we will feel comfortable handing over our babies to him. When God speaks to us, we must listen, believe, and obey, even if he asks us to turn over something that is precious to us. Belief is the all-important second step after listening because we will not obey if we do not take the time to consciously believe. The message translates Ephesians 2.2 in terms of respiration, as if there is a spiritual byproduct of what we breathe in. It says, you filled your lungs with polluted unbelief and then exhaled disobedience. On the other hand, this is healthy spiritual respiration. Breathe in belief, breathe out obedience. God has a plan that is better than our plans. It may be tempting to think the people in the Old Testament had it easier in the way of hearing God. We assume he spoke to most of them directly and audibly in order to reveal a new assignment. True, he often sent an angel to communicate with them. These days, we may feel at a disadvantage. When we need an answer about something specific, the communication can seem a little murky. We wish he'd show up in a blaze of fire or send an angel to tell us in person. Do you need an example of a hope hunter in the Old Testament who receives her task much the way we receive ours today? Take Ruth. God does not speak to her the exact way he spoke to Abraham and Moses and many others. She doesn't see a miraculous sign or a celestial being. For Ruth, her step of obedience begins as an urge of the heart that she just can't shake. No one explains to her that King David will be her great-grandson if she will put aside her own possibilities for a future family and support her embittered mother-in-law. She just knows it's the right thing to do. And so she takes an obedient step toward relationship, not even knowing where it will lead. God notices the way she chooses humility and puts others before herself. The plan that he unfolds as a result of her obedience is nothing short of a regal reward. Not only is she in the lineage of King David, she's in the lineage of King Jesus. God gives back a better family than the family Ruth was willing to give up for him. 
In addition to Ruth, there is Esther, an extraordinary hope hunter whose status as a member of the royal house makes it obvious that she must take a step of obedience to save the Jews from annihilation. Again, there's no ray of light, no earthquake, no disembodied voice. It's the advice of a mentor that guides her. A godly relative whom she loves and trusts directs her toward the path she should take. No one tells her whether the Jews will actually die or whether she will die. She's willing to take an obedient step into the throne room, not knowing how it will end. The plan that God unfolds as a result of her obedience not only saves her, it saves an entire population. Her people are no longer threatened. There is no longer a traitor in the palace, and Esther's dearest relative is brought into the palace, and she enjoys a closer relationship with her husband. God gives back a better life than the life Esther was willing to give up for him. It is essential to remember that both of these women are well into their personal winters when they're asked to take a step. Ruth is newly a widow. Esther has just discovered the plot for a genocide. Days are dismal. Wind whips their hearts and there is no hope on the horizon. This is how they begin the hunt, with nothing in hand. God doesn't spare them the hard work of the search. The steps of obedience they take are steps into spring, but God doesn't explain that. Nope, he just asks them to start walking. When circumstances are difficult, then it is time for you to start walking. But first, you must stop and be still. Strip away all the things that are keeping you from seeing the next step. One way to do this is by fasting. If you have a heart urge that you think may be direction from the Lord, then set aside time to pray and fast. That's what Esther does. She and her people fast for a set period of time. Before she takes a step that could end her life, she wants to make sure it is a step that God himself is asking her to take. Praying and fasting are the way that we cooperate with God's plan. He is the best collaborative partner we will ever have, and if we want to make sure to get his input in a situation, we should ask him for it. The bigger the step, and the higher the stakes, the more important it is to include fasting with your inquiry. If this step of obedience would significantly if this step of obedience would significantly affect life as you know it, then fast in order to discern his will. About discernment, Paul writes, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. The pattern of this world is to do things independently, to make decisions based upon what appears logical. But that is not the pattern of heaven. The pattern of heaven is best described as upside down, for God chose the world, sorry, God chose things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise. And he chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. Things are not what they seem. Jehovah says, As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Then how can we discern a will so high above us? We must bow low. We approach him in extreme humility, not even attempting to know the direction we should take. And we humble ourselves by fasting.
In one of the most eye-opening stories in the Bible, Daniel is devastated by some news and begins to pray about it. Not only does he pray about it, he fasts from choice food, wine, and even lotion for three weeks. And the result? A warrior angel comes to his aid. Do not be afraid, Daniel, the angel said. Since the first day when you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before God, your words were heard, and I've come in response to them. Gabriel goes on to explain that he's three weeks late in arriving because he's been fighting evil forces in the heavenlies. By seeking God humbly through prayer and fasting, Daniel has been engaging in spiritual warfare, but he doesn't know it until then. Fasting is a necessary part of prayer because it humbles us like no other action we could take. I fast from food sometimes, but another effective way that I fast is by refraining from something else I enjoy. This can allow for a longer period of fasting than is possible with food. A few times I have fasted from music in the car for 40 days. I love to listen to music while I drive. When music is absent, I really miss it. I might even miss music more than I would miss food. When I'm fasting this way, I use all my driving time to pray. With my eyes open, of course. Before you take a big step of obedience, number one, if you are married, talk to your spouse. Many times God confirms steps of faith quickly through this relationship. You might even consider praying and fasting from something together as a family. If you are not married, talk with another prayerful mentor or friend whom you respect. Number two, commit to a time of fasting. Depending on your health and situation, fast only a day or two from food or fast as much as 40 days from another activity that you will be hungry for. Be creative when you approach fasting. And number three, use the time you would normally be doing that activity to pray and listen. Let his presence fill the day. In time, you will know where he's leading. You may be walking through winter, but God knows how many steps are left until you reach spring. Sometimes the cold won't end until you move to a warmer climate. Trust him to take you there. There's no way to know the best way to settle our hearts, so we have to ask God and then act on what he says. God is an expert at devising intricate plans. Therefore, ours can be pretty simple. Obedience. That's what's next for all of us. Start walking. If we want a miraculous deliverance, if we want to find a way out, we might have to approach the unknown. We might have to turn over our plans in favor of his plan. We might have to get to know him better so that we can trust him to hold our babies.